everybody, and welcome to Crushing Comics. I'm your host, Peter, also known throughout the internet as Crisis with a K. And I'm here with a little something different than what we have been doing recently, because this is our deep dive into Claremont's X-Men from the beginning. We finally convinced Faria. Actually, I don't think it took much convincing. I think you seem pretty excited, Faria. Right. It was like, oh my God, you got, you should read Claremont X-Men. I'm like, okay, stop twisting my arm. I'll read it. (laughs) That's exactly how the conversation went. Yeah. And so we are going to just start today with the three of us talking about giant size X-Men. And just to give it a little bit of extra meat on the bones, we're actually going to talk also about the backup story in classic X-Men number one. So we are absolutely following the reading guide that is on my site, Crushing Crisis, um, for reading X-Men in order. And that's the way we're going to tackle it. So will we do more of us reading sequentially through Claremont X-Men? Let's just get through this first one and see if Faria liked it at all. And then we can discuss the possibility for doing more of this epic X-Men reread. So in terms of spoilers, the thing to be aware of is that we're going to thoroughly spoil Claremont X-Men, possibly as a whole, even though we're only here to talk about giant size X-Men. But we will try to give you a brief warning before we dig deeply into anything that is current day X-Men. And I will say at the end of the issue, we are going to talk about how our reads of the Hoxpox era have changed our opinion of this. We're going to try not to intersperse it the whole time. Does that sound fair, Tyler? Mm -hmm. Do you think you can restrain yourself? I would try. Okay. <laughs> this is not going to be a forensic discussion of everything about X-Men. Explain the X-Men already exists for that. Nor is it just going to be whether we love it or not, because Battle of the Atom exists for that already, and they're two amazing podcasts, and you should absolutely go subscribe to them now. This is just going to be us talking about the issues and, and what we thought was interesting in our reactions to the issues. Let's just go around as we normally do first impressions, and the most important first impression here is Freya, who is truly the first impression, since this has got to be at least my 25th time reading this issue. Freya, mm-hmm. what did you think of the... Giant Size X-Men number one from 1975. I have some thoughts about it. And, you know, it just, like, I'm not a fan of classic comic book. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something I should say a get-go. So a lot of things kind of hard for me to kind of get through um, in, like, like the over-verbose comic books and stuff like that. So there's definitely some of it over here. Um, How... Ever, it's just like you know i felt like this was an origin story of people i already know and mm. have come a very long way um and somehow it feels like it's also a fan fiction from current krakoa as if like krakoa wrote it <laughs> which we will talk about it a little bit later yes, we're not, but let's you not know dig but, into the spoilers first thing yeah, but it, yeah there's definitely that first perspective. Uh, but the thing is, like, it just, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, I, and I actually went back and checked. This was a debut issue for a lot of these characters, which we have now known to yeah. love. So from historical point of view, this, I thought it was very important. And, you know, I'm glad that I finally got around to read it. Tyler, how many times would you say you have read this issue? Um, rough estimate, I would say at least eight times. But um, yeah, I think I think eight times will be very conservative. So, um, but like, let's 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 stick with eight. Do you feel like you got anything new from reading it again? Do you still find new things in it? Well, I mean, it's 
is something that I think we can talk about uh, towards the end of this uh, this podcast because um, it definitely recontextualized certain things. Um, not a lot of it, but you know, knowing, um, you know, having having read Deadly Genesis, which I hated, <laughs> and then um, having uh, you know the surgical retcon done by. Hickman for Hawksparx, um, it does read a touch different mm. from you know and and the and I do have a lot to say about the backup story in classic X Men number one too. I do too. Yeah. So for me, me you know, I've, I oh cool. <laughs> I have read this so many times. There was a Marvel Milestones version of it, which was what they do them as True Believers reprints, I guess now. But in yeah. the day, a Marvel My- Milestones reprint was with the silver trade dress that the Marvel Milestones books have, but it was a single issue. And it was mm-hmm. on like really glossy premium paper and it was, you know, remastered. And uh, and it was it was beautiful. And I had it, I think I got it like a Comic-Con. So it was cool because at the time it was not as accessible to be able to get old issues. There's yeah. no Marvel Unlimited. And so I read it many times then, but I've now I've read it with my daughter and she has it like committed to memory. She reads it constantly because she has the epic collection. And then I actually just read it panel by panel painstakingly closely last month because there was a tribute issue to it to celebrate its anniversary. Mm-hmm. And the thing I want to kind of first kind of picture or, or draw into mind, and I want to hear Freya's response to this a little bit is, Picture reading this as somebody for relatively little affinity for this property. Like, you're talking about coming to it now, kind of loving most of these characters already. But the X-Men had been on the ice for almost, you know, a decade with a few scant guest appearances. More like half a decade, but still. And they weren't the most beloved Marvel characters. So the idea, the whole concept of the issue that maybe they were all dead um, was a fine thing to do because they were not going to have any being like, no, I'm not going to read it because they're dead. Like, they were not that popular at the time. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what it would be like to kind of go into this as a totally fresh reboot of something? Because at the time, it really was a totally fresh reboot, even though now we look at it as this monolithic classic and the start of the modern era. I was actually surprised by the fact that all these characters were first appearances. Like, I did not know this until I looked it up. That these were, like, I always thought that Nightcrawler, Storm were there from X-Men from get-go, but it wasn't. Even oh, really? Wolverine, That's so interesting. I didn't know that. I always thought they he were there from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's yeah. dissect that for a second. So, and then, so, Nightcrawler, and then also Wolverine. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say Wolverine, even before that, was just in Hulk. That's it. Like Hulk 181. He wasn't, I don't think he was even a mutant over there or he, it was just like all of this just happened here. And, you know, it was also very much like, you know, uh, getting people together, like, you know, very X-Men first class movie like. Yeah. And this is the first appearance full scale for Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm and Thunderbird. Wolverine, Banshee, and Sunfire had debuted previously, but really just in a scant number of issues. Sunfire yeah. debuted in, in X-Men 64. Banshee debuted back in, what is like, 30 or 31. Wolverine had mm-hmm. just been in Hulk. But these are characters that had very little precedent for them in other comic books. So even the ones that kind of existed were relative blank slates. And you have to think that even Polaris and Havoc, who are seen as part of the team here, really only got added to the X-Men team around issue 50 of the original X-Men run. So even for them, 
they didn't like this there were not a lot of characters with a deep deep history in this comic book mm -hmm. other than the core four of the x-men because a beast you know is already blue at this point and, and not present in this adventure and it's I mean, it's amazing. One of the things I think about is looking at this Nightcrawler sequence, which is iconic. It's so visually iconic. The way that um, Cockrum draws the pain on his face as he sees himself being reviled and kind of reflects that hatred back on the mob. And Nightcrawler gets three whole pages, which no one else gets. Some people get two and a half, but broken up between other people's introductions. Nightcrawler gets three pages all on his own. And I think it's really significant. And I want to hear Tyler's thoughts on this, that... This starts hard with the hated and feared theme, which you did not get in every issue of Silver Age no. X-Men, even though it existed and it was a thing. I mean, we kick off this era straight off with this guy who does not look human, he cannot pass for human, and he is definitely hated and feared. And that frames this entire issue. I remember when I first read this for the very first time, and I believe it was a reprint of In a Floppy Farm, and I think it has a silver or gold it's the border. Same one. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the only time that I, I mean, the first time I could get my hand on it. And I was pretty excited. And I, when I first read it, I was like, hmm, I did not like it as much as I thought I would. And part of the reason I think is because the characters are a little bit off from what I have what I understood them to be, having read quite a lot of Claremont's uh, later works. Mm. So so the characters will evolve. And um, distinctively, Nightcrawler is really bitter. I mean, yes. the way his thoughts are, is pretty bitter here, which you will find it changes almost immediately with the next issue. And, um, and I think one of the reasons why he has um, three pages of introduction here is because Cockrum is a huge fan of Nightcrawler. Crawler. Right, Cockrum had all of these as original sketches that he was, some of them he had shopped to DC for different books at a point, and some yeah. of them are combinations of characters that he was going to try elsewhere. Storm, very famously, is a combination of a couple different character concepts. So Cockrum had a great affinity for the character designs, mm -hmm. which is part of, you can just feel the love. But I also think it's interesting that you said that about the voices. And I want to hear Freya talk about this a little bit because I always get the impression that Wine kind of wanted to write everybody as kind of the, the asshole in this issue. Like, there, <laughs> there's really nobody that's super likable. It's like Nightcrawler's feeling hatred and Wolverine's mean and Cyclops is mean to Wolverine and Thunderbird is mean. And it's kind of like Banshee is maybe the one that's allowed to be nice. And it kind mm -hmm. of feels to me moving forward that Claremont figured out pretty quickly that you couldn't have everybody be that mean. And, yeah. and because it just, it, there's like no levels. But did you get that, Freya? Did you feel like they were all kind of mean to each other in this issue? I mean, that's kind of like, you know, the idea of like forming a team, right? Because they just, they were all scared individually and now they get to come together. And even then they don't know each other and they're not sure who to trust. I thought it was very natural and normal hmm. for them to be like this, you know. Um, I was kind of like a little bit taken aback by that, like, you know, his um, Nightcrawler is kind of tend to be a little bit German, like, you know, and his, like, I mean, he is German, not tend he to is. be, he is German, but his voice kind of like, or there's like an accent associated with his, with his words and, you know, there isn't. He talks like an American person in this most of the time. Um, but the one that was mostly shocking to me that Professor X was just standing around allowing Nightcrawler to be staked 
until he decided to st step in and stop. Like he, he was just there all that time, just watching. That kind of stu stood out to me more. And then, uh, per like, you know, there was like, you know, talk about old timey kids comic that they actually showed that someone is about to be staked. Right, like, like he's just about yeah. to get a stake right through the heart, and it's yeah. right through the heart. And it was because you know he just like he just couldn't take it. Like this was a suicide attempt. Like you know, I was like, I think that it was very dark for like within like a first three pages of a character's first appearance. But I who will go on to be awesome later on? Well, and I do think though, to both of your points, that a lot of these. Um, a lot of these depictions get referenced when they need to like recenter these characters, even though it's just one issue of them kind of briefly. That mm -hmm. kind of self-loathing aspect of Nightcrawler does tend to come back, even when he gets happy-go-lucky, even if he gets when he gets very Catholic. Uh, yeah. They do tend to come back to that, and you know, I think Colossus's kind of "I'm just a simple boy who cares about my family," Storms, "I'm a goddess," like these original depictions are really used as touchstones, and Claremont never like full on. Um, contradicts them. He adds nuance yeah. to them, and he starts doing it right away in, in classic number one. The one for me that always sticks out and makes me stop is the first panel of Storm flying through the air. I mean, this was a decade where we had just come off of a couple of years where Marvel was really trying to introduce some black superheroes, and there were, you know, nobody in X-Men, and we go from, you know, Nightcrawler, Banshee, yeah, they're international, but they're all white. I mean, Nightcrawler's blue, but he's ostensibly <laughs> white. Uh, and we get Storm, and I guess my question for you, and I know this can get into a really thorny topic really fast, but she's nude here, but do you feel that the nude is a sexualizing nude, or do you think that it's kind of just meant to communicate her oneness with nature? Because I can never decide for myself, and I'm really interested to hear from you as somebody who's seeing these panels for the first time. Um, I actually kind of took it as like, this is just how she is. I mean, that's <laughs> how know? I feel too. You know, this is like, it didn't feel like forced or anything, or it felt like she, so this, my one question was, she's just pretending to be a god, right? I mean, she's not real. Like, she's not really a god. Well. Or is she? Like, you know, I mean, so the thing is, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure whether it was, this was an act, and she needed to, like, you know, kind of appear a little bit more shocking than usual, and then, you know, with her hair, and then, the, you know, the dudeness and everything but it didn't feel like an artist forced you know his perspective on the character versus the character is like that you know what i mean i mean that's something i always say about emma frost when she's walking around without much clothes it doesn't feel like it feels like that's how she is but if jean gray suddenly starts doing that then it's like okay come on that's not the character you would think to do that but in this scenario it just felt like She's just trying to pull up an act or trying to do something like, you know, just more like separate her from the the people that she's helping. Well, Tyler, what's your perspective on that? Because, of course, we've read a lot of Uncanny X-Men, mm -hmm. so we know Claremont will revisit this theme of is, is Storm really a goddess? Yeah. But how do you react to some of those things that Freya just brought up? I mean, for me, is um, I, I remember... I, I, I mean, I distinctively remember that I didn't really, wasn't really bothered by it. And I thought that, um, I guess, you know, um, when I first read this, I, I was in Singapore, right? So I have never met any um, African person in real. Um, there, there is a distinct um, 
lack of uh, black people in in Singapore. So so um, all all I've I know of African and American Africans, uh, African Americans are are from TVs mm. and uh, and things like that. So um, I thought that oh yeah, you know in she is a goddess in an African tribe, and you know it's quite natural for her to be um bare you know bearing and not wearing anything and i kind of like that later on claremont actually built on this on how she wasn't shy about like just taking off her clothes and because it's natural to her and um but i do not think that she's she's playing a role here i think she at this point in her life because of people worshipping her and because of her powers she might actually think that you know she she's someone who's more powerful than a normal human being and she's kind of like a goddess yeah i've always it's a really interesting topic and i've always read it that she's in sort of a symbiotic relationship with the people there she knows she's different and she knows she can exude some kind of control over the world and of the weather and she's pretty sure she's not a god, but it's kind of like if it if she can help them and if it helps them to think of her as a goddess, then she will be their goddess. And and I feel like that's been reinterpreted many times over. And it's really interesting. You know, I I can't help but read this differently, having very recently reread Life, Death 2 and um, the one, what is that, 196 of Uncanny X-Men? Because Claremont really goes back and layers in a lot of things for Storm there that um, helps recontextualize this. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think she's cognizant of the fact that she's not really a goddess. And I think, but she's her the thing she would say to you, Free, is kind of like, but does it hurt anyone for me to play the role of a goddess if they want me to be one? Yeah. And, and that's what I thought. And that's what I was saying. Yeah. It's like, she knows that she's not, though, right? <laughs> it was just important to me for me to know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that she knows that she's not a goddess. She's just doing something because that's kind of works. And it was a complete contrast with how, uh, um, how Nightcrawler was dealing with his mutancy versus how she was. Yeah, and you have to think that these people don't necessarily know that they're mutants, right? Like, mutants right. was not as widespread of a thing. Even, like, 100 years or 100 issues after this, there's an Avengers comic I recently read where somebody's like, I think they might be one of those mutants. I don't know. We don't know a lot about them. I'm like, Beast is on your team. And, like, Scarlet Witch, like, you, you've met mutants before. But, like, this was at a point that the, the whole idea of the proliferation of mutants was unusual. There weren't really, like, mutant characters that had not at least started out as X-Men characters. You know, Scarlet Witch and Quick silver were in avengers but they were x-men characters before avengers adopted them so it wasn't like now or like every book is like oh no it turns out we're fighting a mutant like that that just didn't exist and so you you know professor x was kind of showing up to these people and in some of some of these instances basically telling them oh by the way this thing that you can do makes you a mutant were you aware of that right yeah and then i i you know i i think like you know how she was dealing with it it's just because you know it just worked for her and good for her. Yeah. Now, let's talk about possibly the littlest known character out of this lineup, which is um, John Proudstar, who doesn't... Well, no spoilers for Freya, but we'll get there. Uh, there's reasons that he's not the most well-known of these characters. And he has a really fraught scene with Professor X mm-hmm. where he's like, I don't need your help. And when has a white man ever 
actually done something that's really helpful for any indigenous American person. You know, like it's all plague blankets is kind of the subtext of this scene. How, how did that hit you? And how did you feel about Proud Star as a member of this team? Well, there's a reason he's no longer there. Uh, I'm, just, I'm sorry. But I think, I, I think like there's two prongs to that because he is right about his, you know, his hatred or like his dislike for Caucasian people. And that's like, you know, very legit. And one of the things that kind of identifies that like, because they don't know that they are mutants, there's no solidarity from that point of view. It's mm. just like what you know as a human but at the same time this is the only i mean you know we don't even to this day we don't have many indigenous um you know representation and one you introduce he's just straight up the angry version of it is that a good thing in like you know i mean what does it do for representation like you know so far we have storm who you've shown you know kind of like you know very much in her element and then you're showing this another second person of color who is also like you know very much ah white man i don't know i was kind of like you know wasn't sure what to think about it from that point of view and also like, like before goes, Tyler like, not because to... like no i'm just gonna say like also and historically i know this character didn't survive right well before i turn it back over to tyler to respond as well i think you raise a really good point that you know it, you could look at all of these characters, right, with, with a very kind of um, bland approach to diversity and go, well, they're all shown in their environment, right? Like, they're, they, they're all, you know, classes on a farm in Russia. How is that different? But then you have to also interpret how the characters of color are perhaps treated differently. Like, Storm's, tri you know, tribe is just shown as these, you know, random people in a desert. Claremont later goes back and corrects that a little bit and shows that, like, Africa is not necessarily just people wandering in deserts, that there's towns and there's technology and, and you know, there's civilization, uh, which is the reality. And I think, you know, you get that sense with Storm, you kind of get that sense with Proudstar and even, you know, Sunfire, Suns, uh, who, gets, who gets the briefest introduction here of everybody is like, oh, let's have a Japanese tea ceremony because he's Japanese. Exactly. And it's like, we're definitely leaning into the stereotype on the characters of color a little bit more than we are for the white characters, I think. So Tyler, where, where would you like to pick that conversation up? I mean, is his, the context for introducing an international cast is pretty interesting because they was, they were, Marvel at that time, I think had an idea that, well, if you get more international people to appear in our comics, then, you know, it would entice them to buy the book. <laughs> but then you started to choose people like from Africa, which probably does not have any Marvel comics at that time. And, and, and you know, and a German, German... Okay, maybe you, you do get some uh, Marvel comics in Germany. But, you know, um, the, the, choice, the choices of, of, of the characters was actually not... Um, ideal for 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 putting for making this uh, a more international comics and um i feel like um maybe the original idea is that well if i have a japanese uh, character appear in the comics i should um place that character in a context that will be understood by japanese readers just mm. so that you know it brings it a little bit closer to them before we bring them to America and do the American superhero stuff. So that, I thought that might be, you know, the reason for it. 
And I think that, that that's actually that a really interesting sense. point that I've never thought of before, that even within the cultural context, that the introduction of Sunfire in a very recognizable cultural setting is mm-hmm. different than the more kind of character caricaturized things that we see Storm or Proudstar doing, you know, like Proudstar's yeah. like mid wrestling a buffalo, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, I that, know. Yeah. Bison. So, so the team gets um, assembled. Oh, go ahead, Freya. No, no, I was just going to say that in Colossus, like, I'm pretty sure the Russian people will understand farming because that's where we see Colossal. But the Colossal or Colossus? Colossus. Colossus. Uh, Colossus. But Colossus, okay. Uh, but his parents, are they still around? Because he was in a very loving family situation and very understanding. Something that took me back a little, like, took me back a little bit. I don't her, know if they're are still alive, parents? are they, Tyler? Um, I think... I can't remember now. I think Actually, something has yeah. happened to them. Something happened to them. Yeah. Oh no! A little Eliana, so and cute. With yeah, her and magic's magic's first appearance. Exactly. Did you know that that's I was magic? Like, like, did that click for you? I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. It did. It did. I know that. I know her. Like you know, well, and I'm like, do, yeah. oh no. Like, I mean, you know, I mean, I like you know, I was like, oh no, that little magic. You know, so um. That was that was very like you know it kind of felt good to kind of make those connections, but at the same time, I'm like oh, we never hear about them. They're so nice, like those parents. You don't get nice parents in mutant world, guys. That's why. That's why you know whenever I see some, I'm always like very appreciative of them. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the art some more before we get into the back half, of the Krakoa part of this issue. There's this point where every you know the team gets assembled. They go with Cyclops to the island. And, um, and they split up into pairs to find their way to the center of the island after the X-Jet gets swallowed up by the island. And there's this page that has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, there's nine, ten panels, and not just like a nine-panel grid, but these vertical slices that are so small. And Cockrum depicts so many things that I look at this one page and I think this is like an issue. We get from Cyclops pointing at the camera to the top, we get the structure in the distance, they make a plan, we see them go into the forest, they fight off these giant tree vines, they, you know, tear them apart, and they finally get to the structure. I'm like, that was like an arc of a current comic, and we got it in one page, and some of the panels are so slim that I don't even think a modern letter balloon would even fit into them. I thought that was genius. Like, you know, the fact that, you know, all these three teams, you are correct that this would have been all each individual issue, but thank God it's not. And it's like done so well in one one page, like one page each. And then you get the team dynamic. You understand what the characters, how they react to each other, how they react to a situation that they're not necessarily interested in being. Um, and it was very well done. It just, it shows how methodical, not just, and this is, I mean, Cockerman and, and Wiener are two of the best creators of all time. Let's just, like, put that out there. But it also goes to show that, like, comics had to be economical at this point. Like, one, a kid was just going to pick this up off a newsstand and get it or not. And so there's this methodical nature to how it's set up. Like, they all get an introduction scene. They all get the band together scene. Cyclops tells them what the mission is and, just you know, describes it with flashback. And then they get paired off. And in every pairing, we get to see each of them use their powers. There's this very specific formula here. And even though it can be a little dull if you're reading it month after month, which we will get into if we keep reading Claremont, mm-hmm. um, it's also just surprisingly effective. Um, the sheer volume of commu- of information that gets yeah. communicated. 
Definitely. I mean, I, I, I know that a lot of um, readers who are used to modern comics, it's like the, the main complaint would be like, let the art shows. Don't tell me what the art is showing. But it, you have to remember that these older comics, that at that time, there is no way for you to buy an issue if you have missed it. There is no concept of like local comics shop at that time. Right, because the direct market was the... just starting to happen at this point yeah. in history. Yeah. So so that's the you know, so every issue that someone picks up has to be there has to be written in a way that it is their first issue. So you need to describe the character's power, you need to introduce them and you know, sort of hint a little bit at the dynamics and sometimes, you know, outright just, you know, repeat the same thing over and over again. But um, if you don't do, but doing that, even as a, um, okay, let me ask this question. How many times have a new characters appear and then you see him or her, her power is that shooting something out of the hands and you're like, um, what is the power? Is it shooting laser? Is it shooting magic, you know, gel or is it shooting, you know, um, um, pheromones or something like that you don't know because the art is supposed to tell you what it is and then you know so you know having captions here telling you that storm controls the weather or you know or um, showing Thunderbird as extremely strong and athletic and you know that kind of sort of like inform you and describe the characters to you as well so so i thought it is necessary so i mean and yeah i mean being very efficient with storytelling and recapping things and then um like showing reaction to certain things in terms of facial expression and and body language i think um this is definitely done very very well here yeah the thing that to me always that is remarkable about this particular issue is that's you know Captions and older comics can be a lot. And we will get to a point if we keep reading Claremont that there are some issues where I will straight up skip the captions. Because it's they I've I even as I read them to the kid, uh, will find that I've described something about the art and then I get to the caption and it says the actual words that I use to describe the art. So at the point that the caption and me both were able to describe the art that way, did we need the caption? Maybe not. But I mm -hmm. think this one, because of the how much small paneling Cochrane uses, that he does some things. I'm in the part of chapter four where the introduce Krakoa. Images flood mutant minds and they stand rooted to the spot. The sunburst brilliance of an early atomic test. Like, you need to communicate with all these small panels. What is it? That it's Krakoa kind of sharing its mental images and that's part of what makes Cockrum's art here so effective is that Wine is like really supporting him in the script so that he can get away with doing these little slices and these little bursts by fully contextualizing it. But I also want to talk about that point in the issue because this turns very quickly into like a creature feature which, which both ties into like 50s and 60s kind of pulp comics in a way that... Mm -hmm wasn't done a whole lot in, in the original Silver Age run of X-Men. I mean, there's some creaturey stuff, but this feels much different than that. And also, Marvel was in a little bit of a creature feature resurgence in the 70s. This was in the middle of them having Conan fight giant monsters like this, having Tomb of Dracula and Frankenstein and stuff, you know, as Marvel comic books. So it's interesting that this story that turns starts out as a very, these are hated and feared mutants, turns into, and we're fighting this giant plant monster! You know, like, it really does kind of feel like two different worlds 
worlds in one comic. And it's always funny to me that Krakoa has become so central to X-Men over the years. Because at the time, it was just a way of writing a silly pulp comic story. I mean, they shoot it into space at the end. Yeah. It's a silly story. <laughs> it is, but at the same time, I was thinking, I'm like... Was just there by itself. You guys decided to come over here. Yeah, you're the and one who detected this yes. mutant and had yeah, to have you, on your team. Yeah, and then you you all just didn't do any research, nothing. Just showed up. Well, now we know why. But you know, you just showed up, and then you were like, "Oh my God, it's Man Thing or whoever." Like it looks like Man Thing, right? It you does. Guys have to it does. Look who existed at that yeah. Time. yeah. Yeah. So and then I was like, "Oh, like you know." So the whole time and. Like, it just, I don't care for this kind of stories most of the time because it's like, the creature of the island was just hanging out. And you just decided to show up. There's a, oh my God, you guys, this guy, this creature has now captured us. I don't know what to do. It, I I don't know. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a little bit surprising. But at the same time, like, well, well. Well, well but they are, but they're sucking, he's sucking the, like, life energy from the mutants. So and yeah, then but, he sent Cyclops back to bring him more, and well, unbeknownst so, to Cyclops, he, you know, he actually killed a lot of them. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying though. But the thing is, it would have made sense if it's like, oh, they were feeling a drawn to them, and that's why they went there. But no, Cerebro found us, and they're like, yeah, we're gonna go there. So it's just like you're at fault. <laughs> you know? Well, here's I don't know. It just it's silly. Warning. Here's where we have to put out the warning. Now I think we're going to start talking about some more recent spoilers from like 2005 yeah. to... We're going to try to not talk about the past couple of weeks because we know how new that is for people. Yeah. But um, this has been recontextualized several times, right? We, Deadly Genesis introduces the <sighs> idea that there was another team that went between the X-Men team and this team. Oh, the yeah. And then also insane. now that we're in the Hickman era of, of, <laughs> of X-Men, you know, you have yeah. the idea that Mura would have already known that Kurokoa mm -hmm. existed and would have already told Xavier because she had that initial initial kind of brain meld with him yeah. almost a decade prior to this point, over a decade prior to this point. So he already knew that Krakoa was going to be, you know, part of their plans. So yeah. it's kind of like, did he necessarily know what was going to happen exactly by sending him to Krakoa and the people getting stuck there and whatever? Like, probably not, because then would Mora have sacrificed her in-between team? No, like some of it had to have been surprising in some way. But you have to think, for in each of Mora's lives, things are going slightly different than they were different. in a previous live because of her choices but it kind of recontextualizes this a lot because you can't help but be thinking about these things as you read it as a modern reader like xavier knew exactly what he was getting into here krakoa mm -hmm. is one of the pieces he needs yeah. on the board so the only way for me to kind of make it make sense in my head that this is a story exodus is telling those kids around the campfire oh, so and it cute. never <laughs> happened <laughs> Like, and then, or Krakoa is telling this through that other non, which is the, uh, what's the name of the other new mutant who is the Krakoa talks through and he doesn't really like it. Mondo. Like, oh, Mondo. Mondo. Which shows up so in the like, stomach, like Quattro Yeah, and... so it's like Krakoa is telling this story through Mondo just to kind of just mess up with everyone. And then, you know, he's telling the, all those new mutants that this is the story it happened. It never happened this way. This was just an old you know, it's like a fan fiction that Krakow well, is writing or yes. Exodus is telling the kids. <laughs> but then, you know, the other thing also might be that um, because the plan to send Krakow to space was devised by Xavier, so there might be a reason why he's doing that. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's how I reread it now, that there was like a need to take Krakoa off of the table for a period. And, and but who knows? I mean, who knows how yeah. many more flashbacks so we're that... going to get to explain this. Yeah, I mean, so that Krakoa is not nuked, right? <laughs> With all the rest of the islands that mutants ever been. Like, you know, that's what humans tend to do. Yeah. So maybe that was also a reason. <laughs> Something in that whole Krakoa sequence that always jumps out at me, too, is that we defined all these characters with all these powers, but they didn't necessarily have a plan for, like, what all of them would do. There's this one where, like, everybody's jumping onto Krakoa, and Nightcrawler is just, like, <laughs> like in the background, like, what, you know, and he's a great character who we all love, but it's like, did you really think this through? What is Nightcrawler going to do in this situation? But I actually always love this because of the sequence of Storm and Polaris receiving the information from Xavier. There's that great pink psychic bolt as Xavier learns things about Krakoa and then there's this page that almost has like a stained glass quality because Storm is in the middle with her arms raised in the central panel and then there's adjourning panels and then Storm and Polaris make a connection and like this is this is pretty cool stuff to have Storm and Polaris kind of being central to this whole thing as two of the most powerful characters here this this is pretty cool stuff for 1975 mm-hmm. and so even though it's you, when you reread it, the action is actually so brief. It's like they're all punching Krakoa for a page and then they shoot it into space. I actually find it satisfying. Then there's the tidal wave and then Iceman makes them afloat. And then, like, they really thought of some cool stuff to do with this cast of, as they say, what are we going to do with 13 X-Men? Yeah. And then they also did it very, very um, cleverly by saying that, oh, we can show you the action. I'm like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> but you know that this would be current in current days there would be one issue would be dedicated just for that oh, yeah. like you know you know but then it was like yeah we it was so epic we can't even tell you i'm like yeah krakoa is writing this it's a it's a story written by krakoa and transmitted by mondo to the little kids that's how it's happening that's the only way to explain this well, let's, let's shift focus a little bit to classic X-Men number one. So for people who don't know, the direct market is in full swing by 1986. Comic shops have appeared all across the land. But now these 70s issues are actually getting quite hard to find and starting to go up in the, on the aftermarket. I remember you could still get a copy of Giant Size X-Men probably like in the hundreds when I first started reading, maybe the low thousands in um, 1991 because it was just before the cartoon had come out. But they weren't super accessible is the point. So classic mm-hmm. X-Men started as a re- print series to reprint from the beginning of the Claremont run, which really effectively starts with Giant Size X-Men. They had a similar reprint, uh, Marvel Tales, I think, for Spider-Man that was reprinting old ASM issues as well. And so to make it worth buying a little bit more, and because Claremont is an obsessive control freak and that's why we love him, Claremont decides that he's going to write a backup story in every one of these issues, some of which will expand the issue itself, some of which um, will be totally separate from the issue. And actually in the background, in Tyler's shot, if you happen to be watching this, he's got the whole omnibus of this, the classic X-Men omnibus. And somewhere to the side of me here, they actually um, released these in a pair of trade paperbacks too. So it's, and this has only been in the last couple of years that these have happened. So if you've always wanted to read all these various backup stories, now you can. And they also inserted some additional panels into the original issues, which I think is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But this whole, And they also changed some of the dialogues. They do uh, change that, some of the yeah. dialogue. So all of this preamble is to say that this is Claremont's shot to recontextualize some aspects 
of what would happen with these 13 X-Men being in the mansion after this, because it doesn't, we don't get a whole lot of that when we get back in Uncanny X-Men 94. And also you have to think about what was happening at the time in 1986. This was kind of like around the time of Inferno, more or less, in the X-Men comics. And so some of the things we get with like Cyclops not making time for Gene and Gene saying, well, he loves me anyway, definitely are meant to kind of rhyme with what's going on in the modern comics that Claremont's writing at the same time. So it's this like multi-stack layer cake of what's happening of Claremont trying to insert some things he wished he had inserted at the time, like Gene being attracted to Wolverine, something that was not there originally. Claremont trying to deepen the understanding of some of the characters. And then also Claremont trying to like do some cinematic parallels with what was happening in the current X-Men comics, which to me is what makes these backup stories so wild because there so many things are happening so that was a lot of yep. me talking um tyler had you ever <laughs> read these classic x-men stories yes. before you have i before. i have the entire run and um i started collecting it because um like i said my uncle's uh, collection started with the uh fall of the mutants so you had to and catch so up. yeah so i need to read all the back issues and the only affordable way then was to buy classic x-men and I, at that time, I actually did not know that Claremont changed some of the original dialogue or added... Well, when he added panels, you could tell because it's drawn by someone else. Yeah. It's like distinctively different. Um, but, you know, the, the changes in the dialogue, I only knew recently when I read through the omnibus. So Freya, now we come to you, who's kind of reading these both at the same time, in the way that Claremont probably would have wanted, right? Like, you're his ideal, because you're getting his retcon along with the original. What did you think of this classic X-Men story? Um, I think it was very interesting once the recap happened, you know. um, Mm -hmm. It was very, like, you know, just um, to see how the different ideas of being mutant means. And I think it's something that is very relevant in this day and age of being, um, you know, being a minority and what it means and Mm. how you contribute. Um, And so it was very interesting to kind of see that that aspect of it. Um, So I read it in Marvel Unlimited. I have no idea whether these are changed dialogue, the correct dialogue, the original. Well, Marvel Unlimited just has the backup story. If you have it in one of these physical collections, if there was a page where they made some tweaks to the original issue, they actually will like mm-hmm. excerpt that. So if you're re- if you happen to be somebody who's reading this on Marvel Limited, very easy to do, very affordable. You're yeah. just Super getting the backup, the, the backup, backup story. story, yeah, but not the, the additional back- panels and not the changed dialogue because okay. that happens okay. within the issue itself, like the original issue itself. Oh, okay, well that's per- that's fine. Uh, but yeah, so the, I think like that it it made I liked this better like you know from like compared to like a giant size x-men because it was just like okay the team came together and they went on a mission and then they sent an island that just was hanging out off to space for no reason um well maybe there's a reason but this one was mostly it felt like okay this is how the team coming together and then what it meant to be mutant for each one of them we actually get to learn the characters more yeah compared to what we did in giant size x-men well i think that some of them come out thematically in a way that won't happen for a while. 
Um, mm-hmm. And Claremont like takes the time here. Like there's this wonderful moment between Colossus and Nightcrawler where Colossus is like, I've always thought about being different and that this makes me different, but Nightcrawler doesn't really have a choice to be different. And it's, they have such a longstanding brotherhood between the two of them. And it was, I actually really prefer having read this early. Like, I don't think Claremont does as good of a job at establishing this for years to come. And it's actually more effectively done here than I think he does it in any of the original run. No, definitely. I also don't know who this Bobby Drake is. I don't know who that this is. This is who it was. That's what he was like. This this yeah. was what Iceman was like. <laughs> this is this is not good. There's not a lot of things that's wrong with Bobby, and I don't like this Bobby at all. I want my top men, my like gay club going Bobby back. Yeah, well, Bob, Bobby's <laughs> deeply well, in the closet here, happen. although that was not yeah. necessarily uh, conceptualized quite yet, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know that makes sense. But the thing is, I think there's a lot of ideas that are being introduced here. Um, that is actually, I thought was fascinating. What like that you... whole scene between the between all four of them mm-hmm. were fairly fascinating. And also later, Storm and Angel as well. Yeah. What did you think nope. about the Wolverine and, and Jean love connection here, Faria? Yeah. Not good. <laughs> I mean, you guys keep on saying flirting or that Jean is into it. So I don't know what version you all read. That was nothing about that was con- consensual. Like there was nothing that was good about that. And that was just horrifying and horrible. And I am just so pissed off about it. Like it's not good at all. Ugh, like, I mean, I don't know. Well, I, I, I do think, not mean I to think... recast that as being consen- yeah. consensual. She just says at the end that she's like, fascinated with him that that yeah. that's but why thing. i don't know why, why. i don't know why but it, <laughs> that's, that's what i was like no please but i find it today <laughs> even as i like read all the way to dark phoenix and you get this really emotional moment with wolverine and gene it just feels mm-hmm. like I, it's something it feels like it was something that was in claremont's head that like never quite made sense on the page and yep. and and now but now it's and everybody considers it this permanent part of canon but in those 40 initial issues mm-hmm. from here to uncanny x-men 137 it i just don't feel like it's there hardly at all and i well, feel that, like this is like claremont kind of trying to like massage it into the no, story no, that, wasn't that an issue where um wolverine um bought roses into the hospital yes yes that is in that canon no, that wasn't canon. <laughs> that was it. No, yeah. no, no. Okay. That, well, that, we'll see. We'll so get this there. one, this one came in. Well, this one is written like after that, right? So I think Claremont is just trying to recontextualize it so that that this happens much earlier yeah. instead of okay. that random scene that appear out of nowhere. You know that kind of okay. thing. But no you know, disrespect. Apart- no, I'm just saying no disrespect to Mr. Claremont. He's a great writer, and I'm pretty sure as I continue on, I would understand it. Yeah. I did not understand <laughs> what was happening over here. Like no, I no, no. did not. I think it. that's a fair criticism because it came out of nowhere. Um, Wolverine was advancing pretty aggressively towards her. Uh-huh. You know, like it's. I think it's. I I don't know. It's meant to be flirting, but. It, it doesn't read very much as flirting. No, it doesn't. It reads yeah. in a really aggressive, yeah. creepy yeah. way. And we Correct. know historically that Wolverine stinks a lot. So <laughs> someone with no, that much body that's order... Not, that's not historically. That is Hickman and Bendis, I think, riding Wolverine. No, he has smelled Aaron. before Bendis. That is not a Bendis creation. A no? man... 
Um, no, he's been he's been stinking all across Aaron's run. He's been stinking in Mark Miller's run. He's like you know historically, it's just a lot of years and years of grime that just wet him. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's just like I I don't know. I just it's just very different. Like I think I yeah. hate the idea that oh the she's in she's already in love with someone and that person is not giving her a lot of time. So she's in a vulnerable place and this man is like hey what's up and it's like no stop that give gene more agency yes. hashtag yeah. give gene more agency well, and that's also, what i'm talking i mean about. you have to think that you know claremont did get to write the classic gene up until 137 but mm-hmm. claremont ultimately in the scope of his run has not written a ton of gene issues because he, he doesn't no. really get her back after that and he yeah. didn't want her to be necessarily be brought back to life he doesn't Claremont barely ever has written Iceman and, and Archangel ever. So this kind of like Iceman is the dejected king, kid brother. Angel is this kind of like overconfident flyboy. Um, you know, Claremont doesn't have a lot of touches on either of those two characters mm-hmm. compared to everybody else in this cast. Polaris, Havoc, Cyclops, all of the new folks. He spends yeah. much more time getting to write all of them than he gets to write Gene, Iceman, or Angel. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah, so later on when Jean says to Professor X, like, yeah, he's like, you know, different. I'm like, girl, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, that was my that was my reaction. I'm like, what? No, no. Is it because you cannot look into Cyclops' eyes? Is that what it is, <laughs> girl, girlfriend? Let's talk about this. No, like, but the, like that's the, yeah. The, there are two things here which I I want to point out. Like the first thing is Wolverine uh, showing his uh claws coming out from his hand right which hadn't happened in the comics for a while yeah and that shouldn't happen here because i think in issue either 99 or 100 they were surprised to see him have claws coming out from him so they thought it was just a glove yeah yeah so i think this shouldn't happen here and then the other thing is how creepy is professor x He's so listening creepy. in. He's listening in to all the conversations going on in the house while he's in the study, like you know, apparently doing certain things. We uh, always knew that he's a creep star, yeah. and then he also knew to know to whoa, I shouldn't be looking listening to yeah, that conversation. <laughs> As if <laughs> that makes it much yeah, better. That no. one conversation yeah. was over the limit. Okay, thanks, yeah. Charlie. Yeah, yeah, like you know, whoa, like you know, I. I never liked Professor X. Like he was never because he has way too much power for, mm-hmm. and I don't think he uses this properly. And this just kind of solidifies a lot of that. It's like, ugh. But we like talking about how Docs is laid out. Yeah. Who knows why he was doing a lot of these things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of those issues that I have to believe that later writers like Brubaker on Deadly Genesis and Hickman are aware of, even though it's like a side issue because. Just so much of what he's saying here actually fits so perfectly with the retcons that have since been introduced. You know, Xavier says he's had his eye on these recruits for a while. Like, yeah. And we know that Deadly Genesis happened before this. And we also know that Mora is in the background with a more active role. Like, of course Mm -hmm. he knew. Like, some of these are Omega mutants that he was always going to have to get in touch with, like Storm, you know? And the same thing where he's talking about Wolverine's potential. I mean, this comes after... You know, Mura's life nine with Apocalypse, nine. where Wolverine is like still around, you know, at that point. Like, Wolverine was critical to the plan. There was never going to be not Wolverine. Life six, too. Yeah. So life I, six, Moira and Wolverine was in that. 
dome thing for like for for the longest of, of time. Yeah. Right. And it, tra- it just tracks really well, actually. So we're going to get to some issues where you have to really bend your brain to try to understand how it works in the modern context yeah. of Deadly Genesis and Hickman's X-Men. This one, I think, reads perfectly if you've been reading new stuff. You can see all of the machinations in play. Yeah. And... and, and- no, I'm just gonna say that like the how I talked about like for giant size X Men, it felt like a fan fiction. This does not feel like that. This actually feels like this happened. You know, this can still mm-hmm. happen in terms of like you know, in terms of like what's what we are reading right now. So and then yeah, so when he said that yeah, Wolverine has a lot of potential and stuff, I'm like still go to the man and tell him that you suck about <laughs> like how you're approaching women. I don't know, like you know, yeah. one should not be forgiving the other. Like, you know, so it's like, ugh. what, what, what about John Bolton's art? I was just gonna say that, think? Freya. What yeah. did you think about his art? Um, his art is very much classic look, like what I'm used to, like seeing in like that era. Um, so it didn't quite, uh, like you know, stand out to me as uh, uh, David Cockrum's uh, Cockrum's work uh, did uh, because of the, all the panels and stuff. This felt very standard and what you see a little bit of, like a flattish uh, art, which not not a bad thing. It's just how the thing was. Uh, but the thing is, I I don't know. Is it because I was reading it um, like digitally, but. Uh, the red in Jean's hair was too much. That is not natural at all. And it was like, I think to me, that where my eyes were going every time. Well, and that's, you know, a lot of people talk about recoloring when recoloring is a bad thing, like when they go back and actually totally Mm -hmm. recolor something. But a lot of what happens in the restoration process on issues like this is that they just try to match the original color values that were on the color guides. But colorists set those original color values knowing that how much the color would be sucked up by newsprint. So what you get is like that red in Jean's hair, which just looks like the reddest red, 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 red Mm -hmm. in the digital version. But if, and I know I have this issue somewhere physically, if you would go back to the physical version of the issue it actually kind of looks much more plain and this is kind of like almost like the hidden cost of restoring old comic books is it takes a lot of nuance to get the the tones right and probably all of the colors in this issue should have had their saturation knocked back 10 or 20 percent but marvel doesn't really do that neither does dc and so we get these like hyper saturated colors on digital versions definitely yeah and it's not and I completely, like, I, as I was reading it, because I'm pretty sure in one of the previous episodes you told, you told us this, Peter. Oh, and that's sounds why like I was a very Peter the, thing to say. Yeah, yeah, so it was in the back of my mind, and I kind of knew that this was not necessarily, this was just a product of its time mm-hmm. and how it's being presented to nowadays. I'm pretty sure no one thought that I would be, Faria would be reading it in Philadelphia in an iPad back <laughs> when this was written in, in the 19... What is what, an iPad? <laughs> Right. Yeah, what is an iPad? So, so yeah, it yeah. kind of makes sense. So no, but I, oh, go ahead, I kind of like enjoy his art a lot, actually, to be honest. Yeah. Like his, I think he's really good. And, you know, um, I remember like the the way the shadows falls on Jean's face and uh, Professor X head. I thought that was done really, really brilliantly. Well, and I think Bolton, I, I love Bolton as an artist. He does the series, uh, or maybe it was just a graphic novel with Claremont in black and white in the 80s called Black Dragon, which is available mm-hmm. in hardcover, which I have, and maybe it's something for me to kind of read because yeah. I don't know that I've ever read the whole thing. But Bolton to me, I mean, he's a comic artist. He's drawing a comic, but he strikes me as almost more of like a life artist or like a fashion artist. He is really 
captures people's faces as being very different from each other. Jean's features are so distinct here in a way mm -hmm. that they really aren't from many people who draw yeah. Jean. And also the fashion. At one point when Jean's standing next to the tree before Wolverine pops up and she's got this beautiful kind of like violet or mauve blouse and this really cool belt and then this magenta skirt. And it's like, it's just drawn with such intent that I don't think a lot of the people at that time that we see on X-Men were necessarily great at drawing the real life fashions. And so they tend to be very kind of like silly and almost funny like people just dress how you would expect a character from the 70s to be dressed but mm -hmm. these characters actually just feel really distinct in their dress and their faces you know Angel's face is really distinct Jean's face is distinct um, Jean and Xavier just do such fascinating facial acting in that last scene and like I don't know if Bolton would be a good pick for a big action comic but for mm -hmm. like a comic like this that's really about people's emotions I think yeah. Bolton is actually a really fascinating Artist. Yeah, he, I think he he will work, work really well for those slice of life type of uh, comics, where yeah, you yeah. definitely need to emote and you know and draw people in normal settings. And I, I feel like he's 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 perfect for it. Yeah, it almost makes me think of like Terry Moore almost the way that he gives everybody right. they're kind of dist they have a distinct weight in the space. It's not just comic characters kind of laid out on a panel. And I feel like Terry Moore in the modern day is, is somebody who's really talented at that, making everybody feel like they like exist in a, in a world. Mm -hmm. Well, look, this is our first slice of classic X Men. We could maybe read all of X Men as long as we can keep Freya's interest uh, engaged yeah. in it. And so we would love to hear your thoughts on that. And we would love to hear your thoughts on if there's things other than just X-Men that you want to hear the three of us talk about. That would be interesting too. But I want to turn it over to Freya and Tyler to close us out with some final thoughts on these two stories that kind of set the tone for all of modern X-Men. So Freya, here you are at the beginning. Does this, does this help you contextualize some things that are happening in some of the relationships in Dawn of X? I'm. I hope it does because you know, or else, or else it wouldn't make much sense. But the thing is, like, I'm just kind of looking at it. Like, look, if my bow, like Jonathan Hickman, can read this book novel, like these books, and then write his own version, why shouldn't I read them mm. as well? That's where I'm just looking at it. But no, I mean, I'm excited. At least reading this too, it just made me think that hey, there is a lot more to learn, and I think I can get there. And so I'm excited to continue on. Excellent. What about you, Tyler, coming back to these issues? What are your final thoughts? Um, for me, I think um, recontextualizing Hotspots uh, aside, um, this really brings me back to the time when I first read it, where I'm a little bit more carefree and where the world is slightly different from the current world right now. And where I was, I mean, I'm, I'm living in a completely different country and climate <laughs> uh, at that point in time. So, so um. There's definitely a lot of nostalgia going on, and um, but you know I'm glad that I have a reason to, you know, to 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 continue to read this. You know, if um if we get enough people yelling, say um, uh, or or if we don't get enough, if we don't get a lot of people saying no 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 no, please don't read this anymore. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting that you bring up nostalgia because I have a lot of nostalgia for these issues and and going back to when I originally read them. But also, you know, my daughter, I've been reading her Uncanny X-Men since we've been here in New Zealand. It's just one of the things that we started doing together to have a thing to do together, one more thing. Mm -hmm. 
And so to me, I have my original nostalgic love for them, which comes from my meeting them kind of in the early 90s. But then I have this whole new set of nostalgia where when I read these issues, and we've read every sequential issue of Uncanny into the 200s now, and she has the epic collection in her room and probably is reading it right next door to here right now. Um, You know, I have a whole new set of memories about these and I have her questions and what she thinks is cool about them layered on top of mine. And so it's really, I always love reading them with new readers. That's to me now become my favorite part of it. Like my impression, especially of the core Claremont stuff and stuff like Giant Size, my own impression of it matters less than kind of like all of the conversations that I get to have about it and everybody else's impressions and opinions. So that's what makes me excited about doing this is getting to talk to the two of you. I mean, I could just reread it. I mean, it's all here (laughs) in my house. I could reread it anytime, but it's just not as exciting to me to reread it by myself. It's exciting to me to reread it with you. It's like we've been always saying, X-Men, reading X-Men should always be done together. I think so. (laughs) We'll leave you on that heartwarming (laughs) note. So look, uh, you know, stay tuned to the channel, to the podcast. There's a lot more X-Men content happening right now because we're right in the middle of X of Swords and that stuff is full spoilers. But we also might have some more thoughts on some classic comments for you too. So Tyler, Freya, thank you so much for making time with my crazy difference in time zones to be with me and to do some X-Men together with friends here. It's always a pleasure. And this was really fun to get to dig into with the two of you. Thank you so much. And, Thanks you know, for I'm having excited. us. Yeah, and tune in for more from Crushing Comics. Bye.